All right. Thank you, worship team. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Uh, as you probably know, in general, as a rule of thumb, the pastor at Tanglewood Bible Fellowship very seldom talks about money or the issue of giving financially to support the, the worth of the local church. However, when in our ongoing study of Scripture we bump into passages that deal with that issue, the pastor does and should talk about that that concept and those issues from a biblical perspective. So, uh, just going to warn you, buckle your seatbelts, make sure your tray table is in its upright and locked position, because we're going to talk about the M word this morning. And the principle you're going to see in this interesting and unique passage is giving to the church is serious business to God. And when I say serious, I mean like all capital letters on the serious. I don't think you can possibly read about Ananias and Sapphira and not get the impression that uh, giving is serious business to God. Speaking about serious business, man, what a, a blessing, despite the free fall of the culture, that because we have firefighters that protect us from fires and peace officers that protect us from criminals and a military all over the world that protects our freedoms to worship, the first significant thing we can do as believers in Jesus Christ the first day of a new week is to get together with a group of believers of like mind and faith to worship, to fellowship, to pray, to study the Word of God, and to proclaim the Gospel. So we're thankful for the blessings. We're thankful for the rain. We've had some exciting rains, but uh, uh, the lakes are filling and God's answering our prayers in that direction. But let's pray before we dive into this passage about the M word that will be teachable to God's word. Uh, let's pray the teacher will have a pure heart and a clear head as he tries to do an exposition of this portion of scripture. And let's pray for our firefighters and our peace officers and our active military. Okay. So, um, Stan Heath, if you would, pray in that direction for us, okay? Amen. Thank you, Stan. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about money a little bit, so I thought we'd have a top five list that dealt with that. So, here are top five signs your church really needs money. It's August, the temperature is 110 degrees, but uh, the church can only afford to run the air conditioner one Sunday a month. That's bad. The elders now pass the offering plates three different times during every service, and the third time they beg and plead for people to give. That's a bad sign. When you called the church office recently, you discovered that the phone had been disconnected. They couldn't afford the phone bill. Number two, last week the deacons actually installed parking meters in the church parking lot. I think that's got some merit there. We'll, we'll continue with the free coffee, but we might start charging you for parking. And the number one sign uh, your church needs money is the only two people the church could afford to serve as its pastor and its worship leader are these two guys. And, uh, yeah, 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 that's us. Uh, yeah. I think we burned them. Uh, yeah, so those are the good old days, right, Tommy? Uh, we have 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and as we work through this book, I want us to try to re retain the essential content of each chapter. And so we're going to use this memory aid, Jesus is alive as head of his bride, uh, because each one of those letters in that statement line up with a chapter content. So let's review the first seven of those. Uh, J stands for chapter 1 of the book of Acts. Jesus ascends to heaven. That's basically what happens in chapter 1. Then chapter 2 is the establishment of the New Testament church on the day of Pentecost. When did the New Testament church start? It didn't start at Sinai. That's when God makes a covenant with Old Testament Israel. New Testament church starts on the day of Pentecost, 
33 AD, when the baptism of the Holy Spirit puts believers into the body of Christ. The Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God are not the same people. We ultimately belong to the same God, but the church has not replaced Old Testament Israel in the plan of God. The establishment of the New Testament church. Chapter 3, we saw the salvation of a lame beggar at the beautiful gate in Jerusalem, which actually gets Peter and John into a lot of trouble, as you know. The unleashing of persecution officially, formally, against the church by religious people. It's not just the agnostics and the atheists that don't like us. It's a lot of religious people that don't like evangelical Christians very much. And then chapter 5, and we're going to look at the last part of chapter 4 today, Tabor, in the, in the first part of chapter 5, and we'll see sin in the church. We don't just have uh, stresses from outside, outside persecution on the church. We've got issues inside, and that's, that's always true in the Christian church. So we'll see uh, Ananias and Sapphira and their sin dealt with very promptly and severely and for good reason. And then chapter 6, in a few weeks, we'll see the influence of devoted deacons and then Stephen stoned to death. So the persecution is only going to ramp up. But let's look at Acts 4.32 through 5.11 today. We're going to see uh, that God takes giving very seriously. Let me just say this before we get started on the verse by verse. Please realize that the chapter and verse divisions in your Bible, the numbers, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, those numbers are conventions that were not written by the original authors of Scripture. The chapter divisions were uh, uh, invented, were uh, uh, designed in about 1200 A.D., at the beginning of the 13th century, and they're just designed to help you find stuff. Stephen Langston, the Archbishop of Canterbury, came up with the chapter divisions. And, you know, um, they're fine. They help us find things fairly quickly. I, but I think the idea was, let's have chapter divisions at the end of a certain unit of, thought, unit of thought, and let's start the next chapter at the beginning of a new unit of thought. And probably 95% of the time in your scriptures, uh, that's kind of what happens basically. However, our passage today, notice it's not chapter 5, one through verse 32 or something. It's the very end of chapter 4 and the very beginning of chapter 5. And really, Blake, if we had it through over again, it's not too late, uh, I'd like to sit down with Stephen Langston and say, hey, let's start uh, chapter 5 at what you want to call chapter 4, verse 32. Let's end chapter 4 with verse 31. Let's start chapter 5 with what, by convention in your Bible, says is chapter 4, verse 32, because you cannot understand the Ananias and Sapphira episode in context unless you realize that that part of the story, it's a two-part story, links with the first part of the story, which is found in our numbering system at the end of chapter 4. And since so many of us, without meaning to, are kind of locked into chapter divisions. You know, when you, a lot of people every year, when January rolls around, they want to read the Bible in a year. Now, just for the record, I'm very much for people reading the Bible generally. And if you want to read it through in a year, I'm particularly impressed by that. But they tend to break it into chapters. That makes sense. You know, read the first five chapters of Genesis or whatever and go to the next one. And so sometimes I think we just don't notice that often the last part of a chapter and the first part of a new chapter are really part of the same story. We're going to try to emphasize that today. And... Uh, by the way, Lord willing, and weather permitting, uh, next week we're going to finish the whole rest of chapter 5. So we're, we're ramping up our speed as we hit the larger passages. But let's just do this. We're going to look at the last part of chapter 4, first part of chapter 5, but it's really one story with two kind of sides. The first part of the story is 432 through 37 in your Bible, and we're going to see a good example of what to do. A good example, Stephanie, how to give. We're going to see that just generally the church in this early phase is involved in great generosity and specifically one guy who becomes a pretty prominent part of the story of the book of Acts. Barnabas is introduced and we kind of see his superlatively generous personality expressed. Okay, That's what we're going to see at the end of chapter 4. In contrast to that, immediately following that, as Luke wrote the story, 
But Stephen Langston puts a brand new chapter division there for us, Blake, which kind of makes us think we've got, come to a full stop and we're starting over again. In fact, the second part of the story is a contrast, uh, and it's really a good example of what not to do, Riley. It's a good example of how not to give. And it's all about motivation, not gross amount. And we're going to see the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira in a public setting in front of the whole church. And it's interesting. Luke, by his prominent mention of Barnabas, Sherry, early on here in the book of Acts, and specifically in this context, Luke, the writer, human writer of the scripture, book of Acts, is highlighting Barnabas by extracting what's, in effect, capital punishment, thus sent unto death on Ananias and Sapphira. God, not Luke, is highlighting their hypocrisy in the fact that uh, uh, gross hypocrisy is probably worse for the church than outward persecution. I mean, uh, non-church people in America say they don't want to go to church because preachers talk about money too much uh, and because there are too many hypocrites in the church. And you know, I think that um, a lot of preachers who talk about it a lot or not very often give you the uh, the impression that as long as the gross amount of your check is big enough, we don't care why you're giving it or when you give it or how you give it or where you got it. And I, I think if we were emphasizing the grace dynamics of giving, I think the unchurched would be amazed at how much God provides for his people. And uh, as far as hypocrisy, which turns a lot of people off, uh, you know what? I always say when people say, I'm not going to go to your church because there are too many hypocrites there. I would say, well, you know what? There's always room for one more. And, um, you know, if, if you're going to try to find the perfect church and dunk it anywhere else, don't join it. You'll ruin it. And uh, really, the local church is ultimately kind of a laboratory where believers in Christ are uh, encouraged to learn how to love imperfect people like themselves. Christianity is ultimately about Jesus Christ, not about Christians, although the better we express Christ, the more powerful our witness is going to be. So let's look at this first part of the story, verses 32 through 37 of chapter 4. And I want you to notice, first we have a general description of the giving, generous dynamics of the church in Jerusalem in its earliest days in verses 32 through 35. And then a superlative example of an individual Barnabas who's extremely generous. Okay, Look at uh, first the general statement of the spirit of generosity at Jerusalem Bible Fellowship. That was the name of the church, no doubt about it. Just like Tanglewood Bible Fellowship, right? And the congregation of those who believed, you could translate that, who had believed. Now Peter is telling them to metanaeo twice, to change their mind about their sin. They got it themselves. They can't fix it. The Savior, he's the only one who can. And that kind of repentance, changing your mind about your sin, self, and the Savior, is part and parcel of believing, active, receptive trust in Christ. Luke uses them, those terms synonymously. A lot of modern American Christians don't. So the congregation of those who had responded to Peter's sermons and other witnessing they'd been doing, who had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, were of one heart and soul, great unity in the church at this stage, not perfect, but great unity. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was exclusively his own, but all things were common property. In Mexico, they say, mi casa es su casa. Right? And with great power, the apostles, because they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, were giving testimony out in the temple in the city of Jerusalem and around Judea of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all to live and share uh, the glories of their Savior Jesus Christ. For there was not a needy person among them for those who were owners of land or houses would routinely sell assets like that, bring the proceeds of those sales to the apostles, lay them at the apostles' feet, and those funds would be distributed within the church body uh, to each as any had need. Uh, superlatively generous sharing was the order of the day. You know, Tanglewood Bible Fellowship has been in existence since 76. Not 1776, of something else, but 1976, and the, the current pastor has been here since 1988, and I've seen a lot of amazing expressions of superlative grace and giving that has kept us going, even though we don't pass an offering plate nor talk about money very often, often have pledge cards and stuff like that. 
But that's what one key dynamic, I think, of people who really understand God's grace in saving them is they tend to be very giving and very forgiving. And if you're stingy and kind of hold grudges a lot, you're probably not looking at the cross very closely because uh, it's impossible for those things not to, uh, to coexist, really, to appreciate the grace of God and to be stingy. And there's a lot of joy in being generous, too. So uh, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, so you notice the believers all together, they're sh- sharing all their stuff. And yet I want you to notice something when it says people will not sing uh, their stuff as exclusive to their own. Number one, this is voluntary. Okay, uh, Socialist mindsets that force people to be generous with their stuff so the leaders can get credit for caring for poor people uh, always break down because you always run out of money. And that's not what's happening here. Occasionally people will say, well, hey, the early church was socialist. This was totally voluntary, and I want you to notice, if you go over to chapter 5 real quick, we'll read ahead of what we're going to see in a minute. After Ananias has lied about selling something and then lied about giving all of it to the church, so his problem was not that he didn't give it all. His problem was that he lied about it and pretended he gave it all. Peter says to Ananias, while it, the land tract that Ananias sold, remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You you, you still controlled it. We didn't sign the deeds of everybody's property over to everybody else. It was common for some people to do that. But, hey, that was your property, man, before you sold it. And after it was sold, after Ananias sold it, that fund, those funds that you got for it, the proceeds, that was under your control. You could have given 10% or 25% or 0%, but don't pretend to give 100% and expect to you know, get a medal at a church service and uh, kind of have a lot of clout now uh, when you only give a percentage of it. Why is it that you have conceived this deed to get applause by people? In your heart, you haven't lied to men but to God. So go back. Uh, we're looking at a general statement about how generous the church was in this early phase, and it's a wonderful thing to see. That is in verse 33, because everybody's concerned about everybody else's needs and feelings, and they're flexing with each other and trying to meet each other's needs as best they can under the grace of God. The apostles were able to focus on the main things instead of you know, refereeing intramural uh, disputes. And with great power, the apostles, they were the leaders, they were the uh, chosen eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, were giving testimony and... Abundant grace was on everybody in the church to live a consistent Christian life and also have an impact on their world. So that's just a general statement of the nice dynamics of the church at that point. Now let's look at a specific individual who contributes to that, just an outstanding example of generosity. Now, verse 36, Joseph. That'd be a good Bible trivia question. In Final Jeopardy sometimes, Stephanie, what was Barnabas' real name? Because most of us think Barnabas was his real name. Barnabas was his nickname. The apostles and Jesus liked nicknames. What did Jesus say to Simon, which means listener in Hebrew, when he first met him? They call you listener? They call you listener? I think he had a big smile on his face. We're not going to call you listener. We're going to call you Rocky, because you've got a lot of rough edges to work on, bud. You know? and that was his nickname. We missed that because we don't know the meaning of the words. Uh, Joseph was Barnabas's real name. He was of the tribe of Levi. He had been born on the island of Cyprus. Had probably spent most of his life in Cyprus. We know he has uh, a relative in Jerusalem, which maybe is one reason he's visiting here at this point. Uh, It was also called, his nickname given to him by the apostles was Barnabas, which translated means son of encouragement. Uh, If you call uh, Simon Bolivar, was a son of George Washington. We mean he was like George Washington, right? He was very brave, a freedom fighter, a great leader. Uh, when you say something is a son of something, you mean they have the same characteristics. So Barnabas was an encourager. And, uh, you know, there's a scripture in Philippians that says, do all things without griping or complaining. And I think a lot of Christians think that says, do all things while griping and complaining. But it says without, you know. Uh, and a lot of us, you know, it's, it's amazing how we can be very offended by uh, anything less than ontological perfection in other Christians. We kind of look at the top of the glass. If there's anything not exactly the way we want it, we get pretty upset 
about everybody else's shortcomings. Barnabas was the guy who looked at the half-full part of the glass. He, he tried to find something like in everybody, and he let them know. Okay? Flattery is saying something nice to Steve that I'd never say behind his back. That's sinful. But if I see something that is a blessing to me or encouraging me in Steve's life and character, rather than just noticing it, moving on, I really probably ought to say, I, I see that, and I think it's an evidence of grace of God in your life. Say something like that. What does Hebrews say about when we get together? Are we supposed to criticize each other? It says, let's, let's generate you know, love and good works in each other. And you do that by encouraging. So uh, Barnabas was an outstanding encourager, which is a good thing. Because in the aftermath of the conversion of Saul, who you know as Paul, who ends up writing 13 New Testament books, because he was such an effective Christian persecutor, Saul, that when he came to the, to the church in Damascus and Jerusalem and said, hey, I'm a believer now, guess what? They didn't believe him. Thought, they thought he was lying. They thought he was just trying to get names and sell them phone numbers so they could find more Christians and kill more of them. The only guy who stood up for Barnabas and said, yeah, I think he's the real deal, was Barnabas. If you like most of your New Testament, you need to thank Barnabas for it. And I'm also convinced that Barnabas wrote the book of Hebrews, but that's a whole different thing. And I could be wrong. But uh, yeah, so this is the first mention of Barnabas. He becomes a major player in the center portion of the book of Acts. But Luke likes to mention people early in part to encourage him, probably. He points out something good about somebody before he tells you about the rest of the story. So Joseph, who grew up in Cyprus, was a proud uh, member of Israel, the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a believer in the promises about the Messiah, and now a believer that Jesus fulfilled the promises of the Messiah. He owned a tract of land, he sold it, and he brought the money, meaning 100% of the proceeds, and laid it at the apostles' feet, which was the general custom, the way they were functioning, as we read earlier. So um, I'm not sure how much he got for the land, okay, Donnie? Let's say he got 10,000 shekels or 100,000 shekels. Whatever he got, let's say it's X, he got it, sold it, and he sold it specifically so he could give all of it to the church to function in its uh, ministries as described in the verses just before that. Now, um, let me remind you what we said when we talked about Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 both talk about this unusual level of sharing and, and uh, exchange of material and, and funds with each other under the auspices of the apostles. Um, that's described in Acts 2 and Acts 4, but it's not prescribed anywhere else in Scripture. When you look at the other churches that, especially the ones that Paul plants uh, in the first, second, third missionary journeys, as you read about the dynamics in those churches, obvious those churches, dozens of them, it's obvious they're not all pooling their money and living off a common fund like that. When you read the epistles, the letters, Romans to Jude, it's obvious there are different economic stratas in the church. They're not all pooling their money. This is a kind of a unique thing um, in Jerusalem. Part of it's just the spectacular spiritual dynamics of the initial burst of God that starts the church. A big part of it, too, I think, was just the economic depression in and around Jerusalem. There had been several famines. There'll be more. And for the last two generations, the Romans had occupied uh, Jerusalem, the whole region, but especially Jerusalem, the capital. The area right around Jerusalem had been heavily taxed and heavily uh, having to pay all kinds of fees and tribute to the Romans and this had depressed the economy. And so uh, there was a real need uh, for a lot of these folks to have some kind of financial assistance. So, uh, you know, I'm proud of stuff like Christians Concerned and what you don't know. And the longer I stay here, the more the, the magnet that draws people with problems, especially we need food or gas or something else uh, like right now, Pastor Brad, it's getting more and more and more of that. It may be a sign of the time, a sign of the economy or whatever. But uh, just so you know, we do a lot of, I do a lot of, because I'm here when, when they come by usually. Uh, and sometimes they just wait. In fact, until <laughs> I get here, you know. So some days they may wait all day, you know. But um, we do a lot of stuff under the radar to help people. Uh, I learned a long time ago, I would never give anybody, even if I had it, had it on me. I don't have access to cash and stuff at church, but if I had a $20 bill or a $50 bill, $100 bill, 
I wouldn't give anybody I didn't know just $100 because some people, you won't believe this, some people are lying about the situation and some people will buy drug or booze or smokes with the $20, $50, $100 you, you get. But if somebody breaks down out here or climbs a break, broken down and they've got a baby in the car and they don't have any gas and looks like they're pretty low on gas, you know, I just escort them down to Roy's Market, whatever they call it now. I still call it Roy's Market. And we put gas in their car and we give them enough food to get down the road, and I pray with them, and they always have, they've got to be somewhere immediately. They can't talk to me too much about Jesus because they're in a hurry, you know. And we, we, we do stuff like that, and if people need more substantial help, we direct them to some other things in, in town um, that helps them. And the Christian church has always done that. But just realize this is a, a really a unique situation. It's wonderful, but it ends up breaking down uh, as you move through the narrative anyway. So, it's, it's, But it's not socialism. Socialism is forced. This is totally voluntary, right? So that's important. Now, let's go from a good example, this good example of what to do, to a good example of what not to do. Look at chapter 5. And again, the chapter break is kind of artificial. Don't let that uh, disconnect you from what we just read. And uh, we're going to see the hypocrisy, as opposed to the generosity of Barnabas, we're going to see the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira highlighted by God in a very severe, deliberate, uh, righteous way that does make us tremble a little bit. Here's the problem, verses 1 and 2. But, don't you like it when your wife says, I really like what you did there, Brad, and that was good, and that was good, and I appreciated that, but you're in trouble, right? So everything's going great in the church. They're all sharing everything. They're all meeting each other's needs. People like Barnabas are selling stuff and giving 100% of it to the church. But a man in the church who's apparently just as much a part of the church as Barnabas had been, uh, named Ananias, which means Yahweh is gracious, you know, the Lord's gracious, and his wife Sapphira, which means beautiful. Right? Um, talking about nicknames, you ought to, that would be a good nickname for you to use for Nancy. Just call her Sapphira. She knows it means beautiful now, and you're going to make points. You probably need the points. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're blessed, man. That's all I can say. Uh, but a man named Ananias, Yahweh is gracious, and his wife, beautiful, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, just like Barnabas, and they want to get just as much attention and uh, impress people just as much as apparently the buzz around the church uh, had responded to Barnabas, but they kept back some of the price he did for himself with his wife's full knowledge. They've discussed this, as we'll see, as Peter interacts with her in a minute, and bringing a portion of it, but presenting it as if it's all of it, like Barnabas did. Uh, he, Ananias, lays it at the apostles' feet. But Peter, who's given some kind of insight, says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why have you allowed kind of your flesh, to want to do a outward religious act to impress people. You can't do that. You've got to do the right thing for the right reasons. That's a big part of the spirituality of the Lord Jesus. Do the right stuff for the right reasons. If you're doing the right stuff for the wrong reasons, we call that what, Olga? When you do the right stuff for the wrong reasons? Bad good works, right? Which Jesus warns a lot about. But a lot of preachers won't warn you about that because we want you to jump through hoops. Any kind of good works you'll crank out, we're happy to see. Peter's not real impressed with this because he's claiming to give 100% and he's lying about it. He's trying to impress people, maybe get some power and clout in the church that he doesn't deserve based on false uh, character and false generosity. Uh, and that's what he's claiming to be. Verse 4, and again, just notice this. Peter's saying, look, while before you sold the property, it was yours. Now, it's customary for people with some tracts of land to sell it to help the church as we're funding and uh, helping people in the church. But it's yours is yours. It's private property. This isn't socialism. This is all voluntary generosity. And what, before you sold it, it was yours. You didn't have to sell it. Nobody's forcing you to sell it. And after it was sold, whatever you got for it, your 10,000 shekels, it was all yours. If you want to give it all, that's great. And that's what Barnabas did, and we really celebrated that. But uh, if you want to give 5%, that's fine. But don't act like you're giving 100%, so we'll be bragging on you, and you'll get some pout, you know, clout and status in the church that's not legit. Um, why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? This is you know, full consent of the will, and you're exactly what they're doing. You've not lied to men, but to God. Notice the Holy Spirit is so dynamic in the church, as Luke has been emphasizing, 
that lying to the church, lying to the leaders of the church, because they're representing the power of the Holy Spirit in the church, is like lying to the Holy Spirit who indwells them. But just notice from a theological point of view, Peter says, uh, Carolyn, that Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit, which means what? Verse 4 means you lied to God. You, you see that he's saying you've lied to the Holy Spirit, right, Sonia? Which means you've lied to God. What does that mean about the Holy Spirit? He's God. The Holy Spirit is not just a force or projection of God. He's a third person. People, you, you can't grieve electricity or gravity. They're forces. But Paul says when we sin in the Christian life, we grieve the Holy Spirit. To grieve somebody, you must be a person. You must be a person with mind, will, and emotions. And that's a nice statement of the personality and the deity. The fact that the Holy Spirit is a, a separate person from God the Father and God the Son. But he's a person, not just a force, and different groups claim differently, and you don't want to go there, right? But the problem is, Ananias, and as we'll see, Sapphira, are presenting themselves as one thing, making a show of their commitment to God and to the church to impress other people, to please men, to gain clout and prestige in uh, the church. And that doesn't work because somebody always sees your heart. You, you know your motivation, and somebody else knows your motivation, right? Uh, there's an event called the Judgment Seat of Christ where all believers in the church age will have what they did and why they did it as believers evaluated by God. He'll look at what you did and why you did it, and then he'll reward you with, uh, before I got those really cool-looking tennis shorts, I got my letter jacket, and one, probably the third happiest day of my life, my salvation, my marriage, and my letter jacket. And some days I'd say my salvation and my letter jacket. Okay, I love that. And Jesus is going to be giving out letter jackets and medals and crowns, uh, like Olympic crowns, not kingly crowns, but Olympic crowns, uh, after he evaluates David Stribling's Christian life. And so that's the only judgment and evaluation of your spiritual status that really matters. That's not to see if you're in or out of heaven. That's to see your level of uh, commendation and even level of service in into eternity. So there's going to be an evaluation of that, but here, this guy's just going through the motions, trying to impress other people, and that's particularly uh, displeasing to God uh, and to Jesus Christ. Uh, if you haven't read Matthew 23 recently, for like 50 verses, Jesus has condemned somebody. And he's not condemning homosexuals there. He's not condemning adulterers there. He's not condemning uh, anybody but very religious people who think they can impress God by how good they are, and more importantly, impress other people by their outward religious activities. And that's the one thing Jesus condemned more than anything else in the Gospels. And now we've got a horrific example of it in the early church. And this is just going to ruin it, unless it gets treated directly. And that's what happens here. Look at verse 3. We go from the problem, not keeping some of the percentage. He had a perfect right to keep whatever percentage he wanted even though it was very customary to have superlative generosity here, but he's presenting what he gave as all of it. He's lying about it, and he's kept some back, and that's the problem. He's making a show of his commitment, and it's fake, right? Look at verse 3 through 6. Ananias and the sin unto death. What's that? We're going to talk about it. Uh, why has Satan filled your heart? You allowed Satan, your, your flesh, to make you do this thing, the wrong reasons, and it's not good, and we won't accept it. It was yours, but you've blown it, and you've lied about it. And look at verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias, you know, if a medical person was there, probably would have said he had a, uh, a widow-making kind of a blowout of that artery, coronary artery that kills people. I'm not sure what mechanism God used, but this is capital punishment, man. This is God just striking somebody dead. doesn't happen often. But you know what? As Josie Wales said, the kid says, uh, Josie, those bad guys you shot had it coming. And Josie Wells said, hey, we all got it coming. We're all going to die, you know, which is true, short of the rapture generation, which we could be in the rapture generation. But he just drops dead. Ananias drops dead, breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. I guess so. And young men in the church got up and covered him. That Even to this day, 
among uh, the Jewish uh, culture is common to have a burial within 24 hours. Why would it be important to bury somebody fairly quickly in that culture in the first century? This decomposition is is not only stinky, but it's a sanitary issue too. So, boom, he's out of here just that quick. Now, uh, it's interesting that the verb uh, that says, uh, why did you keep back? Part of the price of the land. You see that uh, your translation in English probably says something like that. Uh, Why do you lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back uh, some of the price of the land and you claim to give it all? That verb is found also in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint for an incident in Joshua seven after the victory in Jericho as the Old Testament Israel is going in to conquer the land after the Exodus generation blew it. Joshua takes them in. They take Jericho in a very non-military fashion. God just does it for them to show you, I'm the one who's going to win these battles for you. Then they go to the next city, Ai, a little town. Shouldn't have taken uh, any problem at all. And they have a disaster uh, because one guy uh, keeps back some of the stuff that belonged to God, part of the booty. Uh, there's a guy named Achan. you got Ananias here and Achan. They both start with A kept back, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament said he kept back stuff that belonged to God and tried to put it under his coat and get out of town with it, you know. And he dropped, actually he was uh, dropped dead after being stoned, as capital punishment. George Washington had several deserters shot very ceremoniously at a particularly important, uh, I think it was right after the Battle of Saratoga, we had some issues and uh, Washington himself made a big point to have some of the people who might have encouraged them to be on the firing squad. There are certain uh, egregious errors that will so ruin the team, the country, the church, the program, that they've got to be dealt with immediately and decisively. And Aiken uh, and that kind of corruption would have ruined the attempt to conquer the land. Uh, Ananias and his hypocrisy, if that had filtered through the church, it would have ruined the power of the church real quickly. And I think that's a big part of why uh, pretty drastic things are happening here, as you can uh, certainly see. Now look at uh, his wife now. Beautiful comes in three hours later. I think she's probably working on her makeup right now. Now, actually, I've got a different theory on that. Let me read the verses, and I'll tell you what I think happened here. Now, there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And there's no Facebook, there's no texting, nobody knows about Ananias. She doesn't know, for sure. Nobody called her and said, you won't believe, you know. Go to the hospital, your husband's dead. Uh, there now elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in. Beautiful comes in uh, to see Peter. And she probably got summoned, and she's probably thinking, he's going to give her a medal for giving all of the purchase price of the land. She's probably thinking he's going to say something nice to her, right? Because, man, they gave all of it, right? Um, And his wife came in not knowing what had happened to Ananias and the fact that he'd been confronted about his hypocrisy. And Peter responded to her, tell me, and he's giving her a chance to tell the truth and get out of this. Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. Yeah, that's what we sold it for. And he said, and she said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said, no. That's not wasn't the price. Um, why is that you've agreed together? Why did you guys concoct this plan to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? See how far you could push him? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out as well. Ouch. And immediately she fell at his feet. She just drops dead. That's the work of God taking her out. And the young man came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church. I guess so. That'll get your attention. That will get your attention over all who heard those things. Now, because we need a little bit of relief here, uh, my thought is now there lapsed an interval of about three hours. Uh, she probably already had her makeup on. I think she was at the mall shopping with all this extra money she had. Because they pretend they gave it all away, but she's got a big chunk. So she's been buying shoes, you know, at the mall or something. So she walks in on her high heels, thinking she's going to get further commendation from Peter. He says, did you really, you, you saw that thing for, for X? Yeah, I saw it for X. And that's what you gave, right? Yeah, no, you just sold it for Y. And we all know you lie. It was all hypocrisy. And you're not a great spiritual um, giant. You're In fact, you're kind of a jerk. 
uh, overkill. Isn't this overkill? Before I respond to that, one commentator said, this is a quote, the citizens of Jerusalem would now think twice before professing faith in Christ in order to have access to the material goods of the church. <laughs> I, I never thought of that, but I thought, yeah, that'll probably slow down the people and say, yeah, yeah, I'm a believer, and give me what you can get, you know, because it's obvious if you mess around with this, it could be bad. There's a thing called the sin and the death, at least that's what First John calls it, and uh, I think that explains what's happening here. Uh, but let me say a couple things about that. Um, Jesus says in Luke 12, to whom much is given, much is required. Uh, the more you're privileged, the more you're supposed to you know, plug in. I mean, these people, in essence, fire up. They're not just in the first generation church, which would have been pretty cool, except for the fact they didn't have internet. But other than that, you know, it uh, would have been pretty cool. They're at the first church. Eugene, these guys are at the first church, period, with the apostles as the staff. So they've got a particularly privileged position. And to corrupt that church with this kind of public hypocrisy has got to be strongly repudiated and severely punished. And that's what happens. Uh, but I think this is a supreme kind of an ultimate extreme example of sin and the death. Sin and the death is when a believer is involved in a pattern of unrepentant sinful behavior. We all struggle with issues. We all, all have weaknesses. Paul talks about it in Romans 7. Uh, he also says, hey, walk in the Spirit, and then you won't carry out the desires of your sin nature, which means they're always going to be there. So we all have weaknesses and struggles, but this is unrepentant, uh, pretentious, overtly sinful behavior. It becomes so harmful to the person and or to others and or the work of God that God just prematurely ends that person's physical life. Please understand me. If a believer dies at 15 or 55 or 62, it doesn't necessarily mean it's sin unto death. But I do think there's a point of spiritual return that God will not permit a believer to get beyond before he takes him out. And I think here in Anas and Sapphira, I don't think this is the first time they'd ever been hypocrites. When people get caught, I, first time I ever did it, I, I always think, what are the odds of that? I mean, yeah, I mean, just just from a mathematical point of view, I mean, maybe, but uh, um, I don't think it's first time. And that's what's happening here. Um, there are a couple of places I would refer to where you see this. The Exodus generation. I mean, think about it. You've got uh, God's people in what? They're in slavery for 430 years, and then they come out of the Red Sea, and over a million people. Now, not all those people were born again. There was a mixed multitude. But if you think the only born-again believers of the extra generation were Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, because Moses dies and Joshua and Caleb are the only two from that generation that go into the promised land. If you're telling me you think out of that a million or a million and a half people, only three of them were born-again believers, I can't buy that. I grant you, Miriam and Aaron are pretty slimy at times, okay? But I've been a pastor for a long time, and I've seen Christians can be pretty slimy at times, too, and then lie about it, you know? So it's lots of fun. But, uh, yeah, the extra generation, what happened to them? Did they go into the promised land? They were 11 days away from, from Kadesh Barnea, the oasis, which was a staging area, to Canaan. It was 11 days walk for that group. It took them 40 years and a new generation to get there. God basically let that whole generation die out because they just were insubordinate and said, no, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. Boom. Were they all really unregenerate? Were they all fake believers? No. Some of them were, but not all of them. Um, first John goes into some detail, but I like the First Corinthians passage just for brevity here on the fly today. In First Corinthians 11.30, talking about people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, so Southern Baptists, they apparently were using real wine at the Lord's Supper, okay? Because you know, grape juice won't do that for you. But uh, if you abuse it, it's a problem, okay? Uh, they're doing all kinds of crazy, bad stuff at the Lord's Supper, and he says, for this reason, because you're abusing the Lord's Supper, not all of them, but some of them, he says, uh, many among you are sick, and some sleep, and sleep is a euphemism for the death of a believer, Okay? Some, some of these people had so abused the Lord's Supper, the highest form of New Testament worship, God had to prematurely end their physical life. And these, 
Unbelievers' souls don't sleep. Nobody's soul sleeps. Our bodies sleep. Our souls leave the body and got to be at the Lord or in place of punishment. But uh, that'd be the only time you've got believers uh, or unbelievers said to be sleeping. That's clearly believers there. So sin of the death is when you've got a believer unrepentantly involved in sinful behavior, so harmful, God just says, I can't, I can't put up with that. You're, you're out of here. Uh, so that's what I would say about that in brief. I would also say, hey, you know, physical death is not the worst thing that can happen to a believer. I mean, being taken out of your misery probably is a lot better from a spiritual point of view anyway. Certainly, I think uh, theologically you have to say that. But, it, you know, the tragedy of Ananias and Sapphira, the tragedy of these people, is just they had a shrunken spiritual life, and their legacy is a bad example. It's kind of like, I know Ben will remember this, Bill Buckner, Red Sox, Bill Buckner, Mike. Bill Buckner, you baseball fans, had a long baseball career, played for a lot of teams, but he's playing first base for the Red Sox, and sixth game, they've got it won, and he gets a fairly easy ground ball, and what happens? It goes through his legs, and Ray Knight scores, and the Mets win that game, and they win the next night. And Bill Buckner, even though he had a long, pretty successful, much better than average major league career, What's the first thing baseball fans think about when they think of Bill Buckner? They think about the one ball he missed right there. Easy. I mean, even I probably could have caught it. It, was that, it wasn't that hard of a catch. Scott Hoke. Golf fans. Tom, what do you know about Scott Hoke and the Masters and Nick Faldo? Scott Hoke had a putt maybe that long. You know, Any putt at Augusta under pressure would be hard. It was a short putt. He's in a playoff for the Masters. He misses... Maybe it's that long. Okay? And trust me, I can't make them that long under pressure anymore either. So maybe you should tell the story, Mike. I think you still make good putt. But yeah, Scott Huck missed a very short putt. It said 18 inches, two foot. If he makes it, he wins the Masters. He misses it. Next hole, Nick Fowler beats him. And even though he had a long, successful career on the PGA Tour and lots of money, that's the first thing people think about. When you think of Ananias and Sapphira, it's the first thing you think about. Major spiritual blowout, sin unto death. So take this to heart, please. Uh, giving to the church, giving to, in, and through the church is serious business to God. Therefore, what? That would be serious business to us, too, right? Uh, but I would just say this. Hey, don't, don't panic. Giving isn't about the gross amount you give. It, it's really about your motivation for giving and in giving. You know, God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus commends the lady who gives two pennies says, man, she gave more than anybody because she gave out of the pure motive and a huge percentage, like everything she had to live on and was happy to do it, right? Now, here's something most preachers won't tell you. Incorrect motivation corrupts giving, regardless of the gross amount. Uh, giving to get is not giving. There are so many gimmicks in the modern evangelical church. Uh, as Jack Smith, as the generous guy, will tell you, you can't outgive God. But real giving means you give away something, some time that you can't get back, or some money that's gone. Okay? Now, you may get more money, but that money is gone. If you're giving to get, that's not giving, that's prospecting. Okay? That's all that is. And most of the gimmicks and the campaigns that Christians Use in America to give you the gift to the church or all that. You, you give this, you'll get, you give this, and God will give you that. You give this. And real giving, hey, Barnabas, his land's gone and his money's gone, but God's going to give him what he needs anyway, right? And there's I would get Bob's famous saying about you can lose your money, but I wouldn't have time for that, but it's a crazy thing. Uh, so true giving is giving away, sacrificially giving, sacrificing something of value, money, uh, in such a way you don't have it anymore. And uh, Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now watch this. I'll end here. You know, other we don't pass an offering plate. We don't uh, have pledge cards and stuff like that. So other than God himself, if you're a part of TBF as a believer in Christ, the only one who knows how much you give is Ron Miller, who's the current treasurer. Okay? And I've often said, and I mean this, I don't, I don't know who gives what. I don't want to know who gives what. I'm, I'm so corrupt. If I knew the Wanderers were given $10,000 a week, I'd probably be nicer to them than they deserve. And if I knew Steve was given a quarter every other month, I would probably not, you would not be as important to me as you should be, and you are, okay? Just say, you'll know. So, but I've been convicted this week, because 
when I say stuff like that, I've always said too, so because I don't know what you give. You can walk in here like you give a million dollars. And as far as I know, maybe you do. Uh, but I've rethought that. A couple of things. Number one, uh, you know, our total gross giving is only about 240000 a year. So I know you're not giving a, a million dollars a year. It's not possible. And if you are, well, I've got to talk to Ron. That's a problem. <laughs> and it looks, in fact, the whole board will talk to you about that. But uh, about walking in here like you had a million dollars and you didn't, that's, isn't that what Ananias and Spira did? So maybe you shouldn't walk in here like you just gave a million dollars. Because you're not going to impress me anyway. But uh, I would just say, don't let the fact that we make giving a pretty low-key thing around here an excuse to think we don't need or is not important. Because I think that giving does show a big part of where your priorities are. Jesus teaches that clearly. And I don't want to do stuff that discourages you from you know, sincerely thinking about how you can contribute uh, to your local church. You should. You should be invested, not just with your time, but with some treasure in the ministry of the local church. And certainly God takes it seriously. And you can ask Ananias and Sapphira. I think uh, they would agree he takes it seriously too. Right. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to see uh, giving as an act of worship and an act of adoration and a privilege. And uh, we see the problem here with Ananias and Sapphira is they just got horrible motivations. They're trying to impress everybody else with their level of giving instead of wanting to honor you with it. So whether we give $5 a month or 5000 a month or more, I pray that you kind of put some rut remover on our motivations and help us to rethink not just what we give but why we're giving it. And I know that when you give us the grace to, to give generously, uh, in all areas of life, but including supporting our local church, it's a huge blessing to us. We don't necessarily get the money back. You don't send us checks in the mail to reimburse us, but it's an evidence of your grace in our lives. And it's a real blessing to be generous and to be plugged in and really be invested in what's happening in, in our local church. So I pray that you'd speak to hearts, uh, push the buttons that, that need to be pushed. Um, uh, I also want to pray, Father, that no one would think that by coming to a church or putting money in a box or a plate that they can earn their salvation. Salvation is a gift. Uh, Jesus has done something for us we could never do for ourselves. We couldn't pay him to do it or pay him off for having done it. He died for our sins on the cross and rose again that we could have eternal life through faith alone in him and him alone. And so I pray you might... Uh, work to convict anyone here this morning who's not trusted in Jesus as Savior and rested solely in Him with all the faith they've got. Open their eyes to see we've all broken our own standards, much less yours at our worst. We can't fix that between an infinitely holy God and ourselves. But where sin abounds, grace does much more abound that God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us as our substitute. So open hearts to see and receive uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as our crucified, risen Savior. And again, Father, give us the grace to be more generous, to be an encourager, and also to be an investor in uh, the work uh, on this corner as you allow us to be a part of that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.